Excited to be with you this morning and continuing in our series. We've been working through these letters to the churches found in Revelation 2, and we're on our third church. And if you'll notice in your Bible, these are red letter words. In other words, this is Jesus Christ speaking directly to these churches. And really, each one of them has had kind of a, a big idea or a theme, if you will. The first one was the letter to Ephesus. And if you remember, is calling them out on, you've wandered from me being your first love. That was the target that they were missing. And last week, we were in Smyrna, seeing the letter written to them. And for Smyrna, the challenge was, wasn't really necessarily things they were doing wrong, but it was an encouragement to persevere during trial, persevere during persecution. And this week, it's a next city that he's writing to. It's really on the, the path if a courier was delivering mail of sorts. And the next trip that he's taking is to the city of Pergamum. And the kind of the big idea there is a caution against worldliness. I want to ask you here this morning, what is it that comes to mind when you hear the word worldliness? For me, I was thinking about that in my office. I kind of have this picture of maybe an uh, elderly person that's got a finger pointing, a little bit angry, maybe yelling at somebody with tattoos and piercings about being too worldly. I don't know what picture comes to your mind, but the, the picture, the idea associated with worldliness is usually somebody that's a little bit out of touch and a little bit too legalistic. And may, maybe if you grew up like me in some conservative churches, it was had to do with worldliness was was what? Was playing cards? Was going to movies? Was dancing? You know, like even when I say it, it's kind of a rolling your eyes, kind of an effect of worldliness. That's our typical response to that term. But the strange thing is, that's not the way that Jesus Christ sees it. For us as a, as a church in the American church, we're a little bit hesitant to talk about worldliness because, you know, that might make somebody feel uncomfortable and, and not feel at home. But the truth is when Jesus is getting the opportunity to speak directly what is a concern for him, he brings this up with this church. So for us, I would propose that if it's relevant for Jesus to speak about to them in that period of time, Maybe it's still relevant for us to think about today. I like John MacArthur has a definition of worldliness because I want to make sure we're kind of on the same page here. Worldliness is any preoccupation with or interest in the temporal system of life that places anything perishable before that which is eternal. You see that, you think about that for a moment. It's the idea of anything that gets our attention or our focus, where it's elevated, where it gets the majority of our thought or, or time and energy that's not eternal. Start thinking of it in that definition, and you're like, whoa, that's, that's kind, of, kind of convicting. Kind of, kind of, wait a second, I, I thought we were just jumping on, on bouncy houses here this morning. I, like, what, what's, what's he doing? But I think that the Lord has a word for us and a caution for us this morning that's definitely relevant as we think through this text. Let me pray before we dive in. God, thank you so much that you pick the target as to what the church is to be about, that you determine what needs to be elevated. I pray that you'd speak to us directly this morning that you challenge us where we need to be challenged, you'd encourage us where we need to be encouraged, God, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at, that you'd be great, I'd be small in this text, and that you would just bring it to life, that it wouldn't be for the person down the road, but you'd speak directly to us this morning. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name, 
Amen. So we're specifically looking at verses in Revelation 2, actually starting in verse 12 and just going through 17. And this is the letter that's written through John, but specifically the words of Jesus Christ speaking. Take a look at this. starts with a critical reminder. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who, ha- who has the sharp two-edged sword. That'd be appropriate to just start by giving a little bit of uh, backdrop on this city. We've done that for each of the cities so far, and you see on the map there, it's Patmos is where John's writing from. Uh, kind of a route that a courier would take. Letter was first to Ephesus, number one, then a second one to Smyrna, then Pergamos, or, or in, uh, in some translations, which is the one we use as Pergamum is found, and it's the only one out of the, those cities thus far that isn't a port city. It's actually inland a bit. It's actually found on the, uh, located on the top of, of a hill, and it was considered the, the capital of Asia at that time. It had been the capital for 250 years. So, I mean, it was a long-standing city, pretty major and influential. Many in that time would agree that this was the most magnificent city. Even today, it still actually exists or remnants of it. The town now is in, in present-day Turkey. It's called Bergama. Here's a picture. You could still visit the ruins of the city now. And uh, that's what I love about Scripture. Is it's not talking about, oh, this make-believe city. Like, No, this was a specific letter to a specific city and a specific church in that city that's transferable to us today. You can visit that today. Now the, the city itself has actually moved from being on the top of the hill to the lower region there, but you can still get a, a glimpse of that today. Had about 200, I'm sorry, about 250,000 people living in the city at the time, so not a, not a small city. It's known for its impressive archaeology. Arche- architecture, a huge library, a 3,500-seat theater in the the city of the center of the city. Pretty magnificent city in that day and age that it was known for. But the thing, much like Smyrna, is because it was so wrapped around politics and being the capital, it was a very dangerous place for a Christ follower to live because it was required that everybody in that region worships the person, the, the emperor who is, was leading at that time, or the Caesar, if you will. And so there, if not, if you're, if you're opposing that, a pretty dangerous place to leave, live. So much like Smyrna, he's writing to a church with a lot on the line here. He starts uh, by uh, directing it, says, into the angel of the church of Pergamum. And this is the same idea we've talked about, the angel, probably most likely the leader that's responsible for communicating to the, for the rest of the church, probably a small church that's got, gathered together in a home, and they're hearing this letter read. And the first thing he does is he does, and you've noticed this in the first two letters as well, is he gives a little intro in the letter and tells a little bit about himself that might be pertinent for the message he's about to give. Does that make sense? So look at what he tells about himself. He says, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily a, a smart guy, but I do know that if somebody's saying they're holding a sword, that's usually associated with, like, this is, this is pretty serious. I was in Kenya some years back, and I convinced a Maasai guy to, to sell me his machete. I was trying to think of a, a two-edged sword as kind of a picture of this, but the big idea is usually whenever somebody has a sword in their hand, 
they get a little bit more of your attention, right? If you're just at the, uh, at, at, at the mall or whatever and somebody walks up to you, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. They're sw- you're like, uh, you have a sword in your hand. You know what I mean? Like you have my attention. And this is maybe what, what, what Jesus is doing there to get their attention. The picture is this. He, he's showing himself as judge and potentially executioner. So he's elevating himself, making sure they understand, hey, don't forget who I am and what I represent. What does the sword represent? Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Basically, he's saying, I'm the one that determines truth. I'm the one that's ruling over all of this. I've noticed a trend in our culture that we get a little bit loosey-goosey with how we picture Jesus. You know, like you've got this kind of picture him on the flannel graph with the white robe and the light blue sash and the flowing blonde hair and blue eyes. And you're like, I don't know about that. Or even I I noticed some t-shirts, maybe you've seen these before recently, that Jesus is my homeboy. I'm like... Yeah, I don't know that that's an accurate representation. The Jesus that I read about is, is riding on a white horse and is an authority with his tongue being a sword. And I read in Revelation what he does with that sword, and I'm like, ah, I don't think he's homeboy necessarily as we picture him. I think this was the reminder that they needed to hear as they're about to be confronted about worldliness. Hey, make sure you understand and have a reverent fear of God. We're told in the, the psalmist says that that's the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Like it's got to start there. So he starts with that out of the gates, a little reminder of who they're dealing with, that he's almighty God holding the sword. Then he goes into his addressing them in the letter. Verse 13, you can see it hopefully in your own Bible there. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Talking a lot about where he lives. If you think about this, I don't know where you grew up. I I grew up on the outskirts of Chicago, about 15 minutes out of the city in a town called Melrose Park. It was an all-Italian Italian community, and I, was, I actually refer to it as, as when I used to be Italian uh, to, to, to fit in. And uh, in that, that town, it was, actually, it was actually had, at the time, had the most indictments for mafia activity of any town in the United States. So that's where your pastor grew up. You're like, oh, great. And, and when I was there, I was kind of like, well, it was just kind of normal, commonplace uh, stuff that would go on, you'd hear stories of corruption and this and that, and this guy that got whacked and this, whatever, this and that. And I was thinking about it from the outside, you drive through the neighborhood and there's nice houses. It's, I, I mean, everything seemed normal, but the more you started to de- delve in, you're like, man, it's kind of dark here. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of a, a, a lot of corruption with the police. There's a lot of uh, organized crime. There's, there's violence. There's all kinds of drug sales. Like it was, it was like, man, that's from the outside, it looked really good. But when you look past the surface, and I love that that's what Jesus is doing this. I know where you dwell. 
the average person would be like, what? It's the capital city. It's like, it's beautiful. Like, it's a, it's a, a place that people visit on vacations. Like, are you kidding? No, he's saying, no, I know where you dwell. And look at what he says. Where Satan's throne is. Where Satan's throne is. You see, from our perspective, visually, we might just see the architecture. Like, oh, this is great. But he sees straight through that and recognizes that the believers that are there in that church, they're right in the thick of it. They're behind enemy lines, if you will. You start reading a little bit about that city. I was reading just a few details. They had a 120-foot tall altar to Zeus right in the center of town. You're like, man, that's, 100, that's, a, that's a big altar. They, had, they, they, they worshipped all kinds of gods. I thought it was interesting. One, Asclepios was one of the gods that they worshipped and was pictured as a, as a serpent, as a snake. Like, huh, who's on the throne for that one? They also were very entrenched in emperor worship. They had elevated, obviously, the Caesar to a godlike status. There's statues everywhere. We showed a picture last week of one. You see, in that town, there was fingerprints of who was actually ruling that city everywhere they looked. And we get reminded multiple times where Satan dwells. Thinking about that present day, doesn't, you don't have to look very far in our culture, in our world. You don't have to spend much time tra- tra- traveling around downtown Los Angeles to start to see, man, there's a lot of fingerprints of whose world this is. He was pointing to them, I recognize that you're in the thick of it. I know you're behind enemy lines. And he goes with a compliment and he says, yet you hold fast my name. Regardless of the the, the direction of the tide, even though everybody's heading the opposite direction, I'm complimenting you because you haven't budged. You hold fast to my name. He points to a man named Antipas. It doesn't say a lot about Antipas here. What does it say? Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. The idea here was most likely a martyr that was killed for his name. In fact, I was doing a little research, and though the Bible doesn't speak about it, there's a lot of church history that does actually mention Antipas. He was actually a doctor living in that time that was arrested, arrested for trying to proclaim Christ to people. So not just, not just resisting, but actually trying to take ground for the kingdom. He was arrested. I was reading uh, some of the details about his death. He was literally put in this massive uh, bronze bowl that was shaped like an ox, filled with water, and it says that he was boiled to death. Man, like, man, the city looked great on the outside, but we see here they're not opposing individuals or people. They're opposing the person that's on the throne there where Satan dwells. So he compliments them. He points out the fact that regardless of the the threat of death, when death is on the line, that, uh, man, I just thought of Princess Bride, sorry. Uh, But when death is on the line, like you're willing, uh, tangent, uh, you're you're willing to, to stand up regardless and stand firm even at the risk of death. He's like, man, good job on that. Good job on being externally strong. But here's the problem we're going to see in the next verses. That's not our only battlefront. You can, you can hold, verbally stand really strong and be really strong externally, but internally is where the other battle is we face. Verse 14, 
but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Basically, after his words of affirmation of standing strong, he moves to some things that he has against them. And notice that it doesn't say, he says, a few things. That's always a bummer. You're like, oh man, he's got a list. But here's the, the, the thing that he points out. The, the big one that he addresses is that you hold to the teaching of Balaam. You got to wonder when you first read that, that's not one that you just intuitively know. Anybody remember the name Balaam from the, the Old Testament? Balaam, who, who spoke to Balaam? Who did, he inter, who did he chat with? His donkey. Good job. You guys remember that you can actually read about the story of Balaam. It's really a fascinating one in Numbers 22 through 24. But basically, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet for hire. Basically, he was kind of taken by the, the highest bidder, which is kind of a, not a real great prophet. But, uh, but here's the idea, is the king of, at that time, Moab, was guy's name was Balak. So you see his name mentioned there? So Balak was the king of the Moabites, and they had heard the track record of Israel wiping out all of these nations that opposed them. And so he went to this prophet Balaam and he said, listen, I need you to do me a favor for the right price. I need you to curse the Israelites. So he's trying to get in behind the scenes and say, I know that there's something going on more than the physical here, so I need you to curse. Are you tracking with me? I need you to curse the Israelites. So three different times this knucklehead Balaam tries to curse the Israelites each time, and you can read about it in Numbers, each time God puts a, puts a stop to it and says, that's, that's not happening. You can read about the adventure there. And so finally Balaam's like, well, I can't really curse them. But what I can do is I can teach you how you can take them out. Take a look in our text at what he says to do. He says, put a stumbling block. This is what Balaam taught Balak. Put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Basically, this gist, and it's the same attack today, you might not be able to take them out on the sense of changing their eternal destination. You might not be able to get them to budge on, on claiming Jesus Christ, but here's the trick to defeating the Israelites. Appeal to their fleshly desires. That's how you're going to get them. That's how you're going to keep, that's how you're going to take them out. And isn't it interesting all these years later, that's the same approach for us as followers of Jesus Christ, how the enemy works. He's like, man, you might not be able to curse them or defeat them, but you can seduce them with the things of this world. You can seduce them with the things of this world. In Numbers 25, you read about them actually doing that. It says, the, these, the people, is actually the women of the area, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate, talking about the Israelites, ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal. Baal would have been the, the one they were worshiping of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. Basically, what he proposed to them worked perfectly. 
just make an appeal. Just invite them to the party. Invite them to partake. They're going to have, they're going to have a great time. They'll get, they'll get sucked in. They'll get entrenched in this. And before you know it, they'll forget about who the God is they were worshiping. Same strategy all these years later. And it's interesting to read in Numbers 25.9 that God got pretty fired up about this, that he literally put a stop to it and executed 24,000 of these Israelites that were partaking in the world. So anytime you're wondering who's holding the sword and whether he takes idol worship seriously, go back to, to, to Numbers 25. You see that God, you got to understand that God, uh, that compromise leads to judgment you wonder, why, why is it such a big deal? Why can't we just kind of have a, a little bit of, of both, you know, best of, of both worlds? And really, that's how a lot of us try to straddle the fence. One foot in the world, one foot in the world, in, in, in the, the kingdom. But we're told in James 4, 4, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. It doesn't work doesn't work. The, uh, they have opposite priorities and values. The two world systems don't mesh because they're opposite. You have one that's saying it's all about you and your desires. Another one that's saying it's not about you, it's about serving others. You're like, wait a second, the, those two don't, don't coexist. We could go down the line of so many aspects of where the two don't complement each other. And in fact, it's described as hostility towards God. And I wonder, in that day and age, what were the things? We, we see specifically that the thing that got them was forbidden food and sex. That's what the appeal was, that just fleshly desires appealing to. Same strategy, mostly, for the most part today, same appeal. What are modern parallels for worldliness appeals to us today? Make your own mental list. What are, what are they? What is, what, what is the world offering nowadays that it wasn't offering then? Just jot down a couple things for, for a list of some things that we present. The accumulation of stuff, success, achieving more, more power, more authority, more responsibility, popularity, being loved by those around us, recreation, I would say a lot of the things, even in this area, recreation and entertainment have such a draw to them. Good things, but not the priority of our lives. So here's the, the thing that he's saying. Anything that gets more essential, anything that's temporal, that gets more attention to that than that which is eternal, that's a problem. That's a problem. Some of us need to flip through our day planners, through our week, through our schedule, through our priorities. What is getting the attention of my heart? What is getting the focus of my mind, my thoughts? What am I working on? Am I being pulled towards worldliness? 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. In other words, we're not intended to go swimming with those who are drowning. We're not intended to go swimming with those who are drowning. It, it doesn't make sense. If you spent any time at the beach last year, we were down at Zuma. I was out there. It was one of those days that that kind of rip current starts going. If you've been in one of those waters where you start swimming, and you're like, wait a second, I'm, I'm moving backwards. This is bad news. And so I, I remember one time we were out there, and it's funny how the tide just completely changes. You'll be fine swimming along, da, da, da. Then all of a sudden it picks up, and that was one of those days 
I was out with uh, my nephew Parker. We were out in the water, and we we're like, "Whoa!" I told her as, as soon as I felt, I was like, "Parker, we need to get in, man. This is this is getting pretty intense." While I'm doing that, I see another guy, probably another thirty yards out from us. I don't know distances. He was out further than us, but uh, but I was like, "Man, this this guy won. He was a he was a kind of a bigger guy." And I was like, "Man, that guy's that guy's in trouble, man." And I I start noticing on the the uh, on on the beach, I see all the lifeguards. They're just standing there watching them. I'm like I'm like guys. Don't you see this dude's about to drown? Like, get, get out there. Like, why aren't, they, why aren't they swimming out there to get this guy? What's going on? What I was thinking as I reflected on this later, about two minutes later, I see come up one of these, those wave runners, comes up, scoots right by, guy hops on, he's good, brings him to shore. But what I was thinking about, I was like, that was smart. The lifeguards knew you don't try in dangerous waters to go swim and save people. You say, no, I, I'm going to... I'm going, to stay on, I'm going to keep my, hand, my, my feet on the, the solid ground because what do drowning people do? They drown other people. So that's the, the point here. He's saying you can't play in both worlds. It doesn't work. It can't, he, he, we're called to be separate. A lot of times we, have, we get this all confused even in, in the American church thinking, you know what, if, if we make things enough so that people like it and it's so similar, wow, I'm so surprised you're just like us. That's not really what God called us to, to be the drawing factor to the world around us. He called us to be like, man, you are different. There's something going on. Like You're, you're obviously beating to a, a different drum and that's a good thing. That's what the idea of us being a light in a dark world, not being equally dark. That doesn't make sense. So here he's saying, you're following the teaching of Balaam, which was just partake in both. Enjoy the feast and then be there on Sunday. And isn't that the same appeal for us today? Pergamum was great at resisting attack from the outside, but not so good on the inside. How are we with that same test? How are we doing with that? How are we doing with partaking? Do we have our best of both worlds, our, our, our little indulgences that we just give ourselves permission to, but I wouldn't really talk to somebody in the church about it. How are we doing with that? The encouraging thing here, and you notice this trend in each of the letters, is he presents the problem, but he doesn't leave you hanging. He doesn't say, okay, you're really messed up and you're stuck there. He's like, he always presents like, okay, here's the problem and here's the way out. Let's see if you can identify it in verse 16. Therefore, repent. Did anybody catch the, what the, the idea is there? If not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We had some friends in town this last week, and um, on Tuesday, I took the day off work, and we went down, I, I don't know if anybody's been to the, in Malibu State Park, they have this uh, hike that you do that ends up at these pools that you can jump into, and it's kind of strange in the middle of a drought and completely dry, the, and here, here's a picture of my daughter Alexa uh, jumping in, I'm sure it's perfectly safe, um, and so we're, we're, we're taking turns. I, I tested out to make sure each level was okay before the kids jumped. Uh, but, but we're there, and uh, the kids are having a blast. We were, the, the family that was visiting us had five kids, so five of their kids. 
three of our kids are all jumping and we're like, someone's for sure getting hurt. And, uh, but, but, uh, but we kept it going. Uh, and so, as good parents. And so, um, but we're there. And, uh, well, there's kind of, then they get more confident because they're kind of different tiers that you can jump off of. The second tier up, uh, I think Sienna was our first one to do it. And she went up there and jumped. And we're like, yeah, nice. And so we're, we're having the kids do that. And I, we had tested the water depth at, a, at another time, like a year ago. So I'm sure it's still good. And, uh, and, and so, so they're jumping. And then there's this other kid that sees our kids jumping. And he's, I hear him talking to his mom. I'm going to do it. I want to go up there and do it. And she's like, listen, his name, I, I've got his name memorized now because I heard it said so many times. I'll tell you in a second. So he's like, listen, Ben, if you go up, though, there's only one way down. Because these rocks that you got to climb up, man, trying to get down from there, that is, is serious. Like, so you got to be sure before you go up there that you know how to get back down. He's like, he's like all right, Mom, I got it. I'm, I'm going to jump. So this kid, Ben, gets up there, and at first it's kind of playful, and we're like, hey, Ben, you could do it. And, uh, and she's saying from the sidelines, and, and he's like, I don't know, and he's like panicking. And that's the worst thing, because you can't do it halfway. you got to either do it or don't do it. She's trying to convince him, and before long, we're all kind of like, we're like, all right, Ben, do the jump. And before you know it, everybody at this pool is going, jump, Ben, jump, Ben. Like everybody's like doing this chant, this poor nine-year-old kid's like having a panic attack up there. She's explaining to him, listen, son, it's more dangerous for you to try to climb back yourself than to just jump. And, she, and she's like, there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm like, well, that water kind of hurts when you hit it. And, it, she, and, and she goes, she's, she's like, it's not going to hurt at all. He's like, but I'm afraid of the air. I'm like, kid, you're missing it, buddy. It's the water that hurts. And, uh, but this kid we're there for like 10 minutes cheering Ben on. There's only one way down, Ben. Nothing. 20 minutes. Ben, enough. Everybody's taking turns going around them, kind of pushing them out of the way. We're like, Ben, you got to get down. In fact, it was time for us to leave. The sun was setting. I was like, hey, Ben, because like, he's make, making friends with all my kids, kind of uh, messing with them. And, uh, and, 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 they go, and I go, Ben, listen, I got to take my family home. Uh, you either jump now or we got to go and you're just going to be kind of standing up there with just your mom yelling at you. And, uh, and, and so the, the Ben's looking, he's like, I don't want to do it though. And the mom's like, we'll buy you treats. We'll buy you whatever you want. <laughs> and so, so finally we're like, all right, Ben, this is your last chance. And guess what? Ben didn't jump. Ben didn't jump. We left. I don't know if he's still up there. <laughs> like, honestly, like Ben might be still there kind of like curled up in the fetal position. I have no idea. But here I was thinking about it. I was thinking about this. Here's the, the picture that's painted here. He says, therefore, because of this draw to worldliness, he's saying, I got one way for you down. It's repent. That's it. That's it. We complicate this thing. And what does God say that he wants? He says, I just want you to admit that I've blown it, that I'm wrong, and repent. And I was like, why don't more people do that? It's, it's just, it's humbling yourself, saying, I was wrong, man, I've gotten tangled in the world, I'm sorry, God, and this is, to me, I would propose would be a daily prayer, right? Man, God, I'm sorry, that's getting too much of my time, that's too much of my thought, too much of my attention, that's too much of a priority, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry for getting sucked in again, but what is it that keeps us from repenting? I would propose something here. It's not necessarily this part of saying, sorry that's that hard. The part that's hard is repent has a second side to it 
second side of turning and going a different direction. And the truth is, and it's a hard truth to hear, the reason we don't repent is because we love the world. The reason we don't repent is because we love the world. We love the things of the world. We like doing everything that everybody else does. We don't like to be oddballs. We don't want to be the person left out. We don't want to be the person that says no to this or no to that. We, we want to be just like everybody else. The reason we don't repent is because we like the world. We love the world. But the truth is, Jesus cautions us. He says, listen, if not, I'll come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. If you want to find a way to have God waging war against you, and I'd propose that's probably not a good thing. Anybody vote by a, a public opinion here? Uh, it's probably not a good thing. If you're wondering why, man, why does it just seem like I'm, I'm running into this every direction I turn? You're like, well, maybe because you're at war with God because you love the world so much. You love it. You don't want to give, up, give it up. So he's saying, listen, man, just repent. Just turn the opposite, go the opposite direction. And what I love about him, he, he's like, man, I, I'm giving you a, a, a caution here. He says, if you have an ear, and I looked around, everybody has those. He says, let them hear what the Spirit says of the churches. In other words, take this seriously. It's a big deal. Listen up. And the trend that he always has in these letters, what I love, one, he presents the way back, and then he paints the picture, if you do, it's going to be awesome. You will never regret it. He's like, it's worth it all. He says, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give, you, I'll give him a, a white stone with a, a new name written on the stone that no one will know except the one who receives it. Now, you read some of that, and you're like, what? What's that talking about? Like that's that's getting into like revelation lingo. What's but but really if you break it down, he's saying, listen, if you manna, we know what that is, right? It was given to the Israelites, it was kind of like a honey wafer as a, a a means of provision. Basically, what he's saying by hidden manna, I don't know if it's a new flavor or what, but a personal nourishment between you and Jesus. It points towards intimacy, saying, Listen, if you persevere. If you stay the course through this, I'm going to meet you where you're at. You're going, to, you're going to encounter me in ways that you didn't even know was possible. For some of us that have endured trial and been through things, and you're like, man, I never knew I could make it through that. And you're like, whoa, but that's when I got to know Jesus legit. That's when he showed up. That's when he met me at my place of need because I chose to partake. And the reason that I don't think that he's talking about the eternal manna is because he says, I'll give you some of it. Eternally, you get all of it. You get all of him. You're, you're united with. Now he's saying, I'm going to give you little samples. Anybody else like to like taste things before the meal? Anybody, the one that sneaks in the kitchen, grabs a little bite? Uh, I, we were making carne asada, am I saying that right? The taco stuff this last week, and I'm cooking the steak before you cut it, and I'm like looking both ways, popping bites, you know, like I'm like, they won't mind if 25% of it's gone. And, uh, and, and, and so, but here he's saying, listen, he's like, for those people, he's like, listen, I'm going to give you some hidden man of the good stuff, which is me which is me, Jesus Christ, this invitation. You won't regret it. Again, it's worth it. Then he points to, so he talks about the hidden manna, white stone, new name, all kinds of cool stuff in here. The, the, the idea of the white stone 
And this is kind of an interesting thing, and there are some different theories on this, but I think this one is the most sound. In the Old Testament, when someone was being brought up with charges against them, this is how it worked, is the, those, whether it was a judge or whoever was ruling, they would, once they came to their verdict, they would either hand that person a white stone or a black stone. What's your guess on which one you'd want to receive? Yeah, see, we're a bright group here. So the white stone was basically saying, you're innocent. You're innocent. You're not seen guilty. And you're like, you imagine getting that stone when you are guilty? You're like, wait a second. Like, how did I get this white stone? And and I was was, uh, talking to to a friend of mine a little while back, back when uh, the Star Wars most recent one came out. I forget if I told this story. So his son, 17-year-old son, all into graphics stuff and all this, was watching online, and they were bragging about how it was the, for the premiere, it was like the tightest sec- security ever. It was like two days before the movie came out in the theaters, and they had it down at the, uh, I think that's the Chinese theater, red carpet event. You know, you had all the stars, everybody going there, like, this is the place to be, the ticket to have. And so he sees on Instagram, somebody had taken a picture of their pass to get in. And you can guess where this is going. And it had both sides of it pictured. And he's like, oh, oh, oh. so he went online and uh, with a little bit of finagling, found some pictures, pieced it together, made an exact, laminated it, lanyard, made a perfect replica. So then he convinced his mom to take him down to the, he's 17 years old. And they're bragging about the tightest security of all time. He, he walks in, he shows his lanyard, just walks right down, walks right into the premiere of this movie. He's got, you'd love this. He's got pictures of himself, like with J.J. Abrams. He gets into the after party. His mom's sitting in the car the whole time. And, uh, <laughs> He's, but, but it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime stories that he's telling. He's like, you wouldn't believe. He's like, I didn't belong there, but I got in. Like, I, I had no credentials. I was not qualified. I was just a punk kid. And I was like, man, isn't that the white stone? What he's saying, even though you've blown it in every possible way in your lifetime, you've messed up any way you can think of, you've done it. And still, I'm handing you the white stone, white stone, you're in. That's your pass in to eternity with him because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You get the white stone. And I love it. He's like, and I'm personalizing that stone. I'm putting a new name on it. I love when you do a study of what God does with names, man. He takes names and he usually takes a name that's attached to somebody and he does a 180 degree turn of that person's life. You think about some of the, the name changes we've seen in the, the Old Testament. You see Peter the chicken became Cephas the rock that the church was built on. Saul the persecutor became Paul the ambassador, the reason we're here today. Abram, the childless, became Abraham, the father of many nations. You see, when God changes things, he's like, man, I'm, I'm redirecting this. He's like, if you persevere, you're not going to regret it. It's going to be worth it. One, you're going to get to know me better. Two, it's going to be for eternity because you, you got your free entrance pass. And three, I'm going to change you from the inside out, starting from your name, the very fabric of who you are, it makes it all worth it. Because what? Just resist. Just don't, don't have anything to do with that world, man. You got to trust me. It's bad news. Don't go there. Prioritize me. You won't regret it, is the charge that he gives to this church today. Let me pray for us.
God, I thank you so much for this word. And probably if I was piecing together a sermon series, I might not have addressed worldliness, but I thank you that this is your target, the thing that you elevate. Try to caution us that it doesn't work to be in church on Sunday and fully partake in the world the rest of the week. All the things that it offers. God, I pray that you do a work on each one of us that we'd follow the one antidote that you propose. Repent. I know myself talking with you this week had to do some of that even in this topic. Pray that you do a work in this church that this wouldn't be the letter that you wrote to Agora Bible Fellowship. That it wouldn't be the letter that you addressed to me. Recognize that we can only get untangled with your help with your Spirit's work inside of us. God, so we call out for that. We ask for that collectively now. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the picture that you paint here, that it's all worth it. Praise you now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Couldn't be a more fitting song for our message this morning. No turning back, right? Just a couple of reminders, just a couple just practical. What, what if you just spent some time, carved out a little window of time in the next 24 hours, pull away, just talk to God, ask him, is there something that you're wanting to peel me away from? Is there something I need to repent of where I've got too entangled in the world? I pray that would be an exercise in each one of us. I'll commit to do it if you commit to do it in the next day. Just a reminder, as you're leaving today, once a month we give towards our benevolent offering to help out folks in the area that are struggling if you want to participate in that. Otherwise, kids, we've got some fun stuff out there, some food, some hot dogs, hang out, enjoy each other. God bless you. Have a great week.